1: My favorite television programs and all of my favorite radio programs were local programs, children's programs, news programs, talk programs. They were all local programs. I grew up in New York, so they were not shows that you could see for the most part in Philadelphia or in Los Angeles or in Florida or in California there were a few exceptions with the advent of uh, things called the super stations and, uh, and other things but for the most part the programming that they showed in New York except for the network programming was distinctly different from what you saw in the Midwest or on the West so eh, just keep that in mind i um, i love different accents not only different foreign accents, the British accent, the Irish accent, the Mexican accent, the uh, Spanish accent, the um, Canadian accent, a, eh? the uh, you know accents from all different parts of the world, but I really love what comes with different regional accents from the United States. I mean there's something so charming. About a really well executed Southern accent. There's something so friendly yet tough about a really gruff, aggressive New York accent. There's something that is endearing about a Philadelphia accent. And as far as the Boston accent goes, there's something confusing about it because you can't tell if the person that you're speaking to is either a rocket scientist or a uh, or homeless because they both sound exactly the same if they have that Boston accent. But I love it. I love the different regions of the country, the different accents, the way different people speak. I wish I had a little bit more of an accent, honestly. I don't know why. I don't, but you know, I don't. I guess it. I've lost it over time. He put me in a room with other Staten Islanders, and you know, we, we get to Staten Islanding, and then maybe some of my R's get dropped, and I, I sound a little bit more like the typical Staten Island, but for the, Staten Islander. But for the most part, I don't. I don't have a tremendous a tremendous New York accent. Well, the last. So when I got to college, I asked a. Um, You know, one of the other students, don't remember his name, nice guy. Where are you from? You know, you make conversation. He says, oh, Mississippi. I said, why don't you have a southern accent? He sounded like he could be from anywhere. And he said, and this was one of the most astute observations of one's own behavior that I've ever heard. He said, I was raised by television. And I speak the way every generic-sounding person on television speaks. My parents have it, this is what he says to me, but I don't have it. Never had it, didn't try to lose it, just never had it. I grew up watching television, and that's kind of where I learned to speak. So anyway, I mention this because the last bastion of the rolled R in English accents is dying out. England, and Britain generally, have a wide variety of local accents. Towns 10 miles apart can sound very distinct. Speakers in Blackburn, a town near Manchester, traditionally roll the R on the end of words. So Stella and Stellar sound different. But younger people there are losing it. So the death of an English regional accent may not seem like a big deal. But it points to how the growth of international media has flattened accents worldwide. You know, they, they talk about the global spread of what they call uptalk, where that's the kind of questioning tone that's common to, it was at least at one time common to Australian and Californian accents. That's where, uptalk I think is where you sound like you're asking a question even if you're not really asking a question you know i mean it, it's it used to be at one point very typical of young women but now it's becoming increasingly common among the general population where you sound like you're asking a question but you don't really have a question to ask so i'm sure you've noticed this if you now that, if you haven't noticed it now that i've mentioned it you will notice it <clears throat> So this global spread of uptalk um, and the tendency for many U.S. regional accents, such as Texan, to drift towards a generic American newsreader accent is causing, slowly but surely, the demise of the accent. I, I mean, I think... If things continue along this path where these regional accents become more and more diluted, we are seeing we're going to see a Boston accent, maybe even a New York accent a hundred years from now, people are going to be talking about those accents as if they're Latin. Latin the dead language, not Latin, somebody from Latin America. And <clears throat> I'm not really sure what can be done about it. But it seems inevitable that both in this country and in other countries around the world, the regional accent is dying out. I've noticed this. I have noticed this significantly. You know, a lot of times we have a lot of great listeners in Tennessee. We have a lot of great listeners in West Virginia. We have a lot of great listeners in, you know, a lot of different parts of the country. And a lot of times the older listeners who will call in and they have a great West Virginia accent or a great Tennessee accent – I will keep them on for a while just because it's so refreshing to hear something different. Same thing with a great New York accent. And unfortunately, the accent, I don't want to say it's an endangered species, but it's threatened. It's threatened. What does this mean in the grand scheme of things? Maybe this doesn't amount to a hill of beans. I think it's a bummer. This is something that I thought added to a local sense and still do. I think it adds to a local sense of community. I think you, you know, when you're a New Yorker, for instance, and you're traveling somewhere on a cruise ship or on a vacation or maybe even, you know, if you're in the military or abroad, and then you encounter a really great Brooklyn accent or you encounter a really great Staten Island accent, not exactly the same thing. They're similar but not exactly the same thing. You feel this person is one of yours. And I'm sure folks that have a Boston accent or a Southern accent or a Louisiana accent or a Texan accent, both of which are distinctly different from the Southern accent, I'm sure they feel the same way. So I am sorry to see the accent dying out. I don't know what can be done about it because, I mean, while I may get my wish to start teaching civics in schools, we're we're not going to see in this lifetime – accent retention classes in schools anytime soon i think the only thing that can be done i think this is kind of a losing battle is make a point of um having more local media so that you have people in boston who sound like they have a boston accent not this regional newscaster accent all right if you want to comment on this or anything else we have talked about thus far 800 9222 roger is in maryland listening on wcbm hi roger
2: Hey, Frank, uh, when there is a discussion about military service, uh, folks need to also realize that there's 30 to 40 different jobs you can have where you're not carrying a gun and being shot at, Uh, and that's the vast majority of us. Uh, And I talk about myself and other friends of mine who have uh, gone through college. Uh, I had my college paid for uh, by the United States military. Uh, they sent me to Baylor University to get a master's degree, and I was paid to go to college. I have no student loans whatsoever. Uh, I went to Bosnia and Gulf War One. I, I wasn't shot at. I'm an environmental scientist, the healthcare administrator, um, and so when I speak to young people about serving in the military, I speak about my own personal life in this regard. And uh, ended up with an 80k per year retirement and uh, a, a large IRA. Uh, i'm doing I'm doing fine and the only the closest thing to combat that I ever got was when I was stationed at the Pentagon in 9 eleven and I retired a year and a half later.
1: Well, I'm happy to hear that you're you're doing well, uh, Roger, and those are all important things that you need that that uh, I'm glad you pointed out. given everything that you said, all of which I think are selling points for the you know, for the military. Do you think the problem that the military is facing to some extent is a marketing and public relations problem?
2: That is the $64,000 question. Uh, I think that the military is doing a lot and they have been for many decades in recruiting Uh, I don't think they talk about this aspect of it is because they want the grunts on the ground. Um, This side of it that my particular life uh, is not really discussed much by the military. And I try to uh, get that message out that you don't have to be an infantryman or a tanker to uh, serve in the military. Be proud of yourself and do a good job because those 30 to 40 of us are serving those grunts on the ground mm-hmm. and trying to protect them and help them do the job that they need to do and to do it as safe as possible in either research and development and developing protective wear for them, uh, for Dietrich Maryland and all the work they do there in the science and engineering field where I I spent some of my time. Um, and And so I think those aspects need to get out a little more by the military to let them know that hmm there's there's 30 to 40 other jobs you can do and serve proudly
1: i'm glad you pointed that out roger and i'm glad you're doing well thank you 800 9222 stefano is in putnam county hello stefano
3: oh hello frank One and a to you and your family merry christmas thank you you I too. Just wanted to make a com- thank you sir i just want to make a comment on the military thing as well like i just heard the last veteran roger and also mr dutch um, I like what Dutch alluded to, as far as um, I think what he was trying to allude to more is the honestly. I think a lot of it has to do with patriotism, and I have, by a veteran myself, over 10 years in the military, I have seen unfortunately a decline in patriotism. And on, you know, listen, if I may say, when we have crappy leadership with crappy policies, you're only going to get crappy results. And right now, with everything going on, and with the DEI they're trying to throw in and all that. Listen, man, when I joined in the military, I was an Army infantryman for my first branch. And we always used to say, listen, we're all green. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter. You know, we had people coming in from Guam, joining the military, getting their their fast track to citizenship. And we're a brotherhood and a sisterhood, right? So we appreciate our brothers and sisters that we serve alongside. There was none of this uh divisiveness or anything like that i came in a little late too like dutch in 2012 i was 32 when i first joined and there's a lot of pride in it i still have a lot of pride i love my country i'll always love the country but i really from what i see now i'm actually still in i'll be getting out shortly but what i see is that the patriotism has gone uh downhill They actually stopped giving bonuses too, believe it or not. So you used to get a bonus, whether or not you signed in for active duty, uh, a four-year contract, a six-year contract. They actually stopped doing that. And when I asked recruiting and retention why, they stated that because there's literally no money in the budget because it's going to other things. Yeah, well, that's that kind of that. That's not a good incentive. I no, just wanted to put that out there.
1: Thank no, you. Frank. Hey, wait, Stefano, before you go, um, you, you mentioned you did join the military a little bit later than, you know, the typical military recruit. What made you uh, want to join the military at 32 years old?
3: So it's something I always wanted to do. I actually was going to join uh, the Navy right out of high school. And my mother may she rest in peace. Um, you know, she was she was definitely a patriot herself, but she had a lot of health issues that I had to actually stay home and uh, just go the college route and help uh, my brother and her and stuff, and we all pretty much helped the household. So it's a it's a it's a desire that I always had, especially after nine eleven. I graduated high school ninety seven, right? So uh, you know, it was something I always wanted to do nine eleven obviously happened in a one, and I was gonna you know I was really gung ho about it, but. I had to put that desire on hold, but then eventually I said, you know what? I still, I have a desire to serve, you know, it's a beautiful country. It's where the 1% of the U S population, right. And like what Roger alluded to, there's many jobs you could do, right. I did. I chose infantry because that was something I wanted to do. Okay. But there are many other jobs that you could do that actually relate to the civilian sector as well. So, I will promote that. Like my buddy was, uh, he was actually a helicopter mechanic on Black Hawk helicopters and he got out working for a private company making over a six figure salary. So there's a lot of different things you could do if you want to do it, but you know, really it it comes down to the patriotism. And I think what people see now on either on social media or whatnot, as far as, you know, uh, things that are going on and, people's opinions. And, and, and don't get me wrong. You know, you're not really military people are not supposed to put anything on social media because it's called operational security. You know, you never really want to mm-hmm. express your opinions in uniforms, things like that. You have to keep that confidential, but unfortunately it happens. And people see it and it kind of veers them away from it. But at the end of the day, if somebody really wants to do it, they're going to do it. But right now under the, listen, you know, under <laughs> the current leadership, I think that that definitely plays a part. I do hope that in 2024, President Trump comes back in and the morale may go up because you alluded to the morale earlier. I I really feel that the morale is low right now and they see, uh, well, you know, you're not taking care of the United States military. So, you know, you got a lot of problems going on now too. Like you hear in the current news, like the Houthi rebels are now attacking our troops, right? The U.S. Navy, right? That's not good. All right, oh, and yeah. the military has always been like when Roger alluded to—he was in Bosnia. It's always been a strong hand, and force works. All right, that's the you know that's pretty much what we always go by—is you have to project strength to a lot of these enemies because, unfortunately, right. that's the only thing they understand.
1: Yeah, yeah I think we're I, and and thanks for the call, Stefan. great call, yes, and um, and good luck. You know, in f- finishing your military career. I think you know the, that is. A little bit of a separate discussion, not necessarily completely divorced from it, because when we talk about strength, right, and we talk about what our enemies understand, I don't know that that necessarily necessarily plays in to the discussion about military recruitment, right? I mean, if uh, Russia or China or Iran or Venezuela is intimidated because of some military action I don't think that that necessarily makes it more or less likely that people are going to sign up. But that's a that's a a lengthier discussion for another day. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Tony is in Florida. Hi, Tony. Hi, how are you doing this morning? Uh, Well, uh, I have finally gotten the cat hair off of me. So I am uh, (laughs) I'm just better than a mime with a, a sudden urge to sing opera.
4: I've got four caps, so I feel for you. I Thank really you. do. Thank you very much. Um, you know what? When you're talking about accents, I feel the exact same way. I love accents, and I've noticed that they're not like they used to be. And I've also wondered why and if anything could be done about it. And what did you call it, Up talk. Right, That yes. drives me crazy. You've noticed it. It drives me Pardon me? So
1: you've noticed it?
4: Oh, gosh, yeah. And, and I know you said that men do it too now, but I've only heard women do it. And uh, when they do it, it drives me nuts. And we're talking about educated women. We're not talking about, you know, oh, I know. stupid people. Yeah. And um, Judge Judy hates it. And whenever somebody comes on her show and talks like that, she, would, she always says, are you asking me or are you telling me? <laughs> And um, years ago, when I was a kid, I, I met a boy from Birmingham, England, and everywhere we went, nobody could understand his accent, okay, because um, it was so thick. And now, when I hear people from Birmingham, you know, on television, um, their accent is nowhere near as strong as it used to be. It's, it's nothing is it, the way it used to be at all. Um, And I noticed in Britain, too, that they have a a TV accent and um, more and more people from there are starting to talk like that. So even the different um, accents in England are disappearing, too.
1: No, well, I mean, that's what prompted the discussion is the story about how these towns that had very distinctive accents in England, even though they're only 10 miles apart, that's being erased, but it's not just an English thing. It's an everywhere thing. Thanks, Tony. 800 848 Robert is in Pearl River. Hi,
5: Robert. Yeah, hi, Frank. How you doing? By the way, uh, my favorite owl, uh, weird owl was uh, Like a Surgeon. I just watched it. <laughs> no, no. It was, is it Like a Surgeon or Like
1: a Sturgeon? Like, like, a, like, a, like a surgeon because oh. he's uh,
5: pretending to be a doctor. You're right. Okay, you're right. Yeah, yeah, it is Like a yeah. Surgeon. Okay, got it. In terms of the, uh, the recruitment, you know, uh, I had a chance, it was like back in 82, uh, and I had a counselor there, and he was a very nice guidance counselor, and he says, well, you, you could have a full right to us, we go, you did really well, or you could uh, do something else. I said, I think I want to learn a technical job because I want to work right away. I want to make money. And I said, maybe I want to learn how to repair something. He goes, okay, Robert, he's a little bit of a wise guy. He's kind of said, make sure you get it in writing. And I said, "I okay. Get it in writing. Well, the recruiter, he had showed all these films. I still remember his name, Lester Beery. Glamorous kind of film. You know, great-looking meals and stuff like that. It's fine. And a brochure. And I actually had a guy repairing Jeeps, like mechanical job. And I I they t- I took the test. And it was an ASFAB test. I remember one question, who is Mickey Mantle? I remember I couldn't believe that on the test. So I did well, but I said to him, I I took the advice of the guidance counselor. I said, could I get it in writing? You know what I mean? I like it in writing that I'm going to learn a uh, technical, uh, get technical training and how to repair jeeps or mechanical position, training position. Right away, he didn't even think about it. He says, well, I cannot guarantee you that. But the jobs were listed in there, you know, Uh, and that was one of the jobs, the, uh, uh, that you could you know train for and i just don't and i decided not to go i got cold feet so i well uh, yeah
1: i can certainly understand yeah. why uh robert and I, I think what you're mentioning is a not uncommon re- recurrence not just back then but uh but you know even these days as well robert uh thank you Eight hundred eight 848 9222 we'll continue with your calls in a moment this is the other side of midnight straight ahead
0: the other side of midnight with frank morano Side at Midnight with Frank Marano.
1: this song. This is a brilliant song uh, because it combines two things that I really like. Um, Jeopardy, the game show Jeopardy, and Weird Al Yankovic. A great song. And I'll be honest, this is one of the few examples in history where the parody, and I'm not just talking music here, you can apply this to movies and other things. The parody is better known and more recognizable than the original song. Now, we all know Like a Surgeon is a satire of Like a Virgin. We all know Amish Paradise is a satire of Gangster's Paradise. What is this song a satire of? Don't look it up. What is this song a satire of? This song is a satire of Jeopardy um, with the the chorus, Our love's in Jeopardy, baby. Um, This song is better known than the original, I believe by the uh, uh you know i don't remember the original artist i think um uh, the greg kin band yeah i just had to look that one up it's from their 1983 album do you ever hear that these that's days right it's you rare oh and that's the other thing about this song you what you look a guest win. vocal from a don pardo Isn't that?
2: encyclopedia international a case of turtle wax and a year's supply of rice aroni the san francisco treat. but that's not all You also made yourself look like a jerk in front of millions of people. And you brought shame and disgrace on your family name for generations to come. You don't get to come back tomorrow. You don't even get a lousy copy of our home game.
0: You're a complete loser. Don Pardo,
1: the man who was the Jeopardy announcer, obviously these days best known for Saturday Night Live. But uh, was the Jeopardy announcer from 1964 to 1975, a guest vocal in that. We got to get Weird Al on this show uh, because uh, he's just too much. He's too fun and too talented. We got to get him on. All right. Uh, We're going to get to your calls in a moment. 800 848 9222. Tony is here. Matt Blaze is here. Elias has come back. Uh, so that's that's a step in the right direction. Uh Tony, were you I mean, um, Matt Blaze, were you at the, the party today? Did you stop by?
6: I did. I stopped by, I guess after you had already did the Was pit. it still super crowded when uh when when you were when you when you were there? Yeah, there was still a lot of people there. Um I did go to see and see if there was any food left and it's all gone. And I only expected think it has to be hidden somewhere. Well, there's still, there's still some pizza I saw. Yeah, there's a lot of pizza, but there was like chicken fingers and little uh, burgers, sliders and French fries and, and rice balls. And I was like, before I went to go check, and it's now nowhere to be found. So I go, where did all that food go? Because there was a lot of food here when I got here. I don't know. Well, I thought we had a lot. I thought we'd have a lot to snack on tonight. Also I'm a little disappointed. Well, again, there's plenty of pizza, but uh, also
1: aside from the the food, do we have any idea where the tea is right now? Yes, we're, I could get you the tea. Well, just so, tell, it's tell around me around the corner. To, all right, we got so to. You have to go. Yes, that's what right, I'll, right. I'll get you the tea. Th- thank you. You just you know pointed out to me. Um, right. So that's that. All right. So uh, we saw the other day. My wife and I were coming home last weekend, actually. We saw, you know, we have a whole setup for these outdoor cats. We have these houses outside of our house for the outdoor cats to feed. There's water, there's food, and all cats from the neighborhood, you know, feed in there. So last weekend, maybe the weekend before, I don't know, within the last two weeks, we see, as we're coming home, a new cat hanging out in our little outdoor cat area. Now, my wife's very good with this stuff. She recognizes what's going on. And she sees from a distance, from a good 15, 20 feet away, that the cat has a collar, meaning it's somebody's cat. So she doesn't know if the cat's missing, if the cat ran away. So she decides that she's going to put out a trap for the cat so that um, she can, you know, bring the cat into our house or at least in our garage see what the label says, and then hopefully contact the cat's owner to reunite the owner with the cat, if necessary. It was a cat that was fixed, I believe. that You could tell because the ear is tipped, and that's how you know the cat's fixed. So we had to borrow a trap because my wife lent our trap to her sister out in New Jersey. Fine. So we borrow a trap, and I get the word, last night as I was here at the Red Apple Audio Network party that my wife trapped a cat, but not this cat that she was hoping to catch. She trapped a new cat for the first time. She trapped this cat that is um, a black cat who she's never seen but or she only saw once before and is not fixed. So <clears throat> she traps this different cat And this cat is currently in our garage, and she is able to get an appointment early this morning, I think around 6.30, to get this cat fixed at the vet. So I get the word. She calls me while I'm at the party. What's the earliest you can get home after the show tomorrow? I said, I'm, I don't know, I'll leave right after the show. It says, and, how, and, and normally she's asleep when I get home, so this is not a big cause of concern for her. She says, and how long will it take you to get here? 45 minutes? Um, an hour? Uh, can you do it in 35 minutes? I said, I don't know, maybe about 45 minutes. It depends on traffic. Why? She said, well, I have an opportunity to get this cat fixed this morning. So that's what we're doing today, is I have to run home to do the trade-off, the car trade-off, so that my wife can take the car and the cat to the veterinarian to be fixed. It's a nice-looking cat. It's a black cat. um, Looks like a kitten almost. But, you know, there's a reason, at least once per show, I always say help control the pet population and get your cat spayed or neutered because the reality of the situation is that, and Bob Barker, when he was on the show, used to talk about this quite quite frequently, is they're all these, these people that are trying to get these cats adopted and they are almost doomed to fail because they are reproducing at a rate that is far greater than they can get adopted. And unfortunately it leads to a lot of these cats getting, you know, a lot of these cats getting, uh, suffering, honestly. So, um, We'll see where this uh, where where this whole thing goes. Hopefully we can get this cat fixed. He'll recover in our garage, or she'll recover in our garage for a couple of days. And um, we will then be able to catch that other cat that is probably someone else's cat. Here's Bob Barker and I talking about his axiom that I've adopted, help control the pet population, get your uh, dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is 10 years ago when I was talking to Bob Barker. Mr. Barker, you know, you know uh, how we have to end the segment. Unfortunately, you know, you, I'm going to call you back out of retirement to end this segment the way you did every show on The Price Is Right.
7: I I shall never forget to remind you to help control the pet population. Have your pets spayed or neutered. There.
8: You-
1: so we we t- he obviously he no nobody does it like him, but we talked about the importance of getting your pets spayed or neutered. Now, you were uh, pretty influential in getting the city of Los Angeles to uh, pass an ordinance dealing with spaying and neutering uh, pets. What exactly is the case now in Los Angeles, and do you think this should be a model for cities like mine here in New York?
7: I think that any city that uh, does anything legal to promote spay-neuter is doing the right thing. Uh, Overpopulation is one of the most tragic problems, animal problems, that we have in the country. There are just too many cats and dogs being born. And uh, there are people across the country who are spending their time, their energy, and their money trying to find homes for these animals. And unfortunately, these people are doomed to failure because the homes don't exist. The only answer, the only answer is spay-neuter. And uh, that's why I always uh, close the show that way and why I formed the D.J. and T. Foundation, which subsidizes spay-neuters. And uh, it, it, it's just a, a problem that we tried desperately to solve. And, of course, it isn't solved as yet, but uh, we're making good strides.
1: Great man. Great man, Bob Barker. All right. 800-848-9222. Steve is in Brooklyn. Hello, Steve.
8: Yes. Uh, not only is uptalk an epidemic. Uh, that started in the 1960s and 70s as Valley Girl Talk in many, many movies. But there's another phenomenon that's been given the name of vocal fry or popcorn voice, or sometimes in New York City it was called grogger voice, where a person talks like this. Uh, Artificially, it's an affectation. And um, I remember Henry Kissinger used that voice, and uh, the people are probably too young to remember Press Secretary Hotting Carter. Uh, both of them spoke like this to the public over the radio. And you knew that when they were adopting Popcorn Voice, they were lying. I had a distant uncle, a great uncle, who had it also, and it used to irritate me as a child. I never knew quite why. But my distant great uncle was full of baloney most of the time, and um, it got to be very, very annoying and grating. But the point is that it's when a person does that they don't want to exert their full diaphragmatic ability to use the lungs properly to speak and what they're really saying is that the person they're listening to almost everybody is not worthy of them making the exertion to use their full normal voice
1: couple of things steve one i agree with you that uh, vocal fry is uh... is definitely becoming more common Um, I don't view it as as the motivations for this as being as sinister as you ascribe them to. And and I'll tell you why. In the last maybe 15, 20 years, really ever since the Kardashians took off...
8: The girls, the women do it.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people that watch these celebrities and watch these oh, yeah. reality shows... They emulate them either intentionally or or unintentionally. They just yes,
8: that was the second explanation I was going to provide. If if you give me a second, sure. Um, In women, it's an attempt. It's it's an it's a sort of a um, let's say it's a kind of an exhibition. It's internal intimate sound, the sound of which is thought by women unconsciously to imitate uh, sexual climax. And that, that when they're like, uh, I, 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 I don't
1: I don't I don't know about that one, Steve. I just think it's when people are big stars, you know, this happened in when Friends was a big hit and everyone wanted to get their hair done like Jennifer Aniston, who played Rachel. And whether it's the Kardashians, whether it's Britney Spears, whether it's Zoe Deschanel, Katy Perry, uh, Demi Lovato or, or or others. I mean, they are all women. I know Paris Hilton, Lindsay Lohan, Miley Cyrus. They, they all do it, and I think young, young women and girls, quite frankly, that see yeah. that. And it does happen with men.
8: Well, uh, I was about to say, and men have copied that from right. the women. The males right. have copied it from the females. They seem to do it, too. And it's, it's an entirely artificial way of using the human voice. And you're right. People emulate that. Uh, another thing that I've witnessed just as a social observer is the way certain women stars stroke their hair backward with their fingers sh- spread like a comb. They're always doing it like a nervous tick. It's a, a, it is a kind of a tick. It's an insecurity. And when they keep doing it over and over again, you you realize that they're doing it unconsciously.
1: Well, Steve, I, thank you very much for the call. I am the worst with this because I have several nervous ticks. One of them is, <clears throat> does involve my hair, not the combing it with my fingers, but I will take my thumb and my index finger, and I'll do this all day long, especially when I'm under stress or when I'm concentrating. I, I can't imagine these guys behind the glass how often they see it happening, but I will twirl with my thumb and my index finger my the back of my hair, and I'll pick one hair or two hairs on the back of my hair, and I'll just rub my thumb and forefinger together with my with my a strand of hair in between the, those two fingers. And I do this all the time. So it's a nervous tick that I have. So I'm not going to criticize anybody else's nervous tick. I, I hear where you set what you're saying on the vocal fry, I think you're right in terms of the increase in popularity. I part company from you both in terms of that it's being done to intentionally deceive people and I part company from you in terms of whatever point you were trying to make about sexual climax. I mean, there's been a lot of characters throughout history. James Bond, played by Sean Connery. There's some examples of him using verbal fry. It's everywhere these days. Between verbal fry and up talk, some people do both. Again, I'm a, a little hoarse now from all the time I spend shouting over music to make routine conversation, make small talk with my friend Darren who could easily just listen to the show and know what what questions he was asking me. But you sometimes see people that do both. It's it's difficult for me to uh, do an example of both because it does put a lot of strain on the voice. But, you know, it's not unusual to hear someone say, Hey there, so I was totally thinking about this amazing trip I took last summer. You know, it was like the coolest experience ever. We like hiked through these incredible mountains, and the views were just, like, breathtaking. I mean, seriously, the whole vibe was so chill, you wouldn't even believe it. And, oh, my gosh, the food? It was, like, out of this world. I remember trying this dish, and let me tell you, it was, like, the best thing I ever tasted. I mean, that is... Not rare these days. You know who I know can do this. Marlena Shivo is going to be here later. She is, she's a critic of everything, especially the human condition. I'm going to have her give her best example of, um, of vocal, of vocal fry. Last thing I'll mention here, and then I'll get back to your calls: eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two, eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Is you know I'm a member of SAG-AFTRA, a very proud, very proud member of SAG-AFTRA, and I'm now caught up on my dues. And one of the benefits of being a member of SAG-AFTRA is not only do you get to vote on the SAG Awards, what movie should win this, what movie should win that, but you get screeners. And I am a guy that now no longer gets the Netflix DVDs mailed to me. And that's when I did... This is when I do all my watching. Well, again, now I have no time, but... Historically... When the Golden Globe nominations begin, that's when I begin my movie watching for the season. And I spend three months really watching movies with all my free time. These days, I have not. I'm at maybe a movie a month. But if that, if that. So I get a piece of mail from the SAG After folks yesterday. And they said, uh, they gave me a new membership card for 2024. And they said, all right, well, from now on, all of the screeners that we send to SAG-AFTRA members are going to be digital screeners only. We are discontinuing the DVDs unless what? unless you go online and opt in to the DVDs because the de facto mode is digital only. I can never figure out how to watch these digital only screeners on my television. So I, you're darn right. Especially now that I don't get these Netflix DVDs, I ran to the computer to make sure that I opted in for these DVDs. So they confirmed that I'm still going to get the DVDs. Thank goodness. That was a close call there for a couple of minutes. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Joaquin is in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hi, Joaquin.
0: Mr. Verano, please take this as respectfully as possible. Did you say Mr. Verano? You should have owned it. You idiot! <laughs> you could have been the bell of the ball. What owned what? You're, all, you're you're all for pets, right? For for homeless cats and shelter pets. You could have said that was my clothing designer. Yeah. Um.
1: Maybe that's an idea. You know, it, it becomes difficult to um, to do that when your boss is telling you you look like you had mold on you. But m- maybe that would have been a better strategy.
0: Yes. You know, I was going to make a comment earlier because I thought you were going to go in the direction of having to put the illegal immigrants into the military service, which would be a terrible idea because you have all these military-age immigrants, uh, illegal immigrants coming in from all over the world. And in the past, the conspiracy theorists would say that, you know, the U.N. was going to be on our shores, you know, uh, basically taking over our sovereignty, and this is a way to turn our military against us. And that actually makes a lot of sense. And there is another radio host who served as a U.S. Marine Corps combat veteran in Iraq. And he knows many uh, veterans, you know, combat veterans that have generations of military service. And they don't want their kids serving in the current military under the current policies that are going on.
1: Well, look, Joaquin, thank you for the call. I agree with you on the illegal immigrants in the military. I think that is A recipe for disaster. I I can think of all sorts of problems, including people that may not necessarily have America's best interests at heart wanting to join the military and then getting access to not only maybe weapons, but information that we wouldn't want them having access to. As far as, uh, you know, I I know there's so much um, these days now that the Democrats are in charge, there's such a tendency to blame the Democrats for the problem when George Bush was in charge and getting the military involved in all these foreign conflicts, there was such a tendency to blame him and the Republicans. I um, I think it's deeper than just politics. I think that a lot of folks see what's going on and they don't want any part of it. I just – I think a lot of people don't feel the same connection and the same civic pride that previous generations did. I – you know – I think they have different priorities. All right. 800 848 9222. We'll move on from this and uh, get into some other issues as well, including this um, Texas immigration law. Have you heard about this? Very interesting. We'll get into it straight ahead.
0: The other side of midnight. 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 midnight.
1: top of the hour. This is Cream, Crossroads. This is a selection, musical selection from our listener of the week. Uh, The original Rick in original Jersey. I want to mention this briefly. I know other people covered it earlier in the week, but uh, I haven't had a chance to weigh in on it. The Texas immigration law is pretty interesting. Uh, This past Monday, Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed SB 4, a state bill creating a process for state officials to deport migrants who have crossed the border without legal authorization. Essentially, the law authorizes Texas law enforcement to stop, arrest, and jail migrants suspected of entering the country illegally. SB 4 was passed by the legislature earlier this year, and it's set to take effect in March Barring any legal challenges, the ACLU has sued the state over the law, calling it unconstitutional because the federal government has sole authority over immigration. If enacted, the legislation would make illegally crossing the border a state misdemeanor and illegal reentry a second-degree felony punishable by prison time from 180 days to 20 years. It would also permit a Texas judge to order an illegal alien to... Return to the foreign nation from which they entered. Governor Abbott has also signed two other immigration bills into law SB 3, which allocates $1.5 billion of state money to continue construction of floating barriers in the Rio Grande River, and um, while well, another bill, which increases the minimum sentence for smuggling immigrants from two years to 10 years. Now, this is a pretty big deal. This legislation marks another step in the escalating tension over the border between Republican governors of border states and the Biden administration, which Texas Republicans say is not doing enough to secure the border. Now, these bills come after consecutive years with more than two million migrants apprehended by U.S. Border Patrol agents along the southern border. You hear what I said? More than two million apprehended That does not include the people who got through. That is the highest levels on record. U.S. officials said that there have been single days this month with over 10,000 crossings. And since August of 2022, Texas has bussed over 65,000 migrants to Democrat-run cities all over the U.S., including Chicago, including New York. Governor Abbott, who was in the border town of Brownsville, to sign the bills said Texas needs to defend itself from drug cartels. The Texas bills have been widely criticized by the left, uh, drawing a lot of comparisons to a bill Arizona enacted about 13 years ago requiring suspected migrants to provide documentation on demand, which was struck down by the Supreme Court, the Arizona law. The left is opposed to the law, And they're saying it's going to allow for racial profiling of 62 million people, most of whom are citizens. They're afraid anybody that looks Hispanic is going to get stopped. Some people say the governor is using anti-immigrant rhetoric to justify upending a century and a half of precedent on immigration law. Others say Texas is ignoring the lessons of failed immigration policy. I hear all that. The right is mostly supportive of this. Some are praising the governor for taking a bold step to better secure the state. Others worry the law won't be effective. My view is the law is probably unconstitutional, given that Arizona case. But Texas had to act because Congress isn't doing anything. They've shown that they won't. And while it's sensible to want to restrict illegal immigration, um, I think there are some logistical problems with this bill. I think there there are already laws we could do a better job enforcing, and hopefully the feds get the message that they should start doing that. Your influence counts. Use it.